0: we're going through job 31 we're listening to job's final appeal as it were before god where he sort of dismissed or done away with listening to the arguments of his friends he's making his plea before the lord and the substance of this plea is very much his innocence in light of the charges brought against him and we've said all along this doesn't mean that job is claiming to be Sinless. There may be moments in this where he gets a little too self-righteous for his britches, but that's really not the focus of the text, and it's not the main problem here. Job's right that he, his life is not characterized by these types of sins. And what we talked about last week, he gives is going to give a list of sins in chapter thirty-one, and he started with lust, and we used that to talk about uh, Job has a particular perspective on sin and how sin must be resisted and how that requires practical steps and real engagement with the reality of temptation. And we talked about how Job also tells us that the only way you win the battle against sin is when life is lived in light of God's presence. And we talked about this concept of quorum Deo and a life that's lived before the face of God and so now we're going to apply those principles that Job taught us about dealing with sin to the particular sins that are in this list in Job 31 and let's start Noah would you read five through eight
1: if I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity if my step is turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows from me be rooted out.
0: The, the words that he uses here uh, are, are all about truth versus falsehood. It's a It's a broad spectrum of truth words and falsehood words. It's not just as simple as telling a lie. This is one of the reasons why I'm inclined, despite my desire not to quibble with people over over words, but find out what they mean. "Thou shalt not lie" is not one of the Ten Commandments, (laughs) and I I, that doesn't mean God likes lying. God hates lying, and He abhors the liar. And liars will not inherit the kingdom. It's, It's it's saying that is not making a defense for lying, but. Among the Ten Commandments is a very particular kind of false speech. It's, it's a legal kind of false speech of making accusations against your neighbor that are not true. And that's one type of false speech. Well, Job uses broader language here. Job pulls in all kinds of improper speech. The wrong use of God's name. You know, in some ways, the third commandment is about telling the truth. You can't use God's name falsely and and please God. You cannot say or suggest things about God's name, which includes his reputation, his nature, his character, that are not true without breaking the third commandment. And, and that's carried up in this, as is false testimony, that, that false witness idea that's in the Ten Commandments. Also, though, this word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament for the, the false teaching of fake prophets, people who claim to be speaking on behalf of God or claim to be giving you the wisdom of God, but the things that they're saying are false, they're uninspired, they're not of God. And Job's Point here as he sort of paints the category is that fault. I'm a quote Derek Thomas: falsehoods are intrinsically untrue, and those who trade in them are insincere and untrustworthy. Now, as somebody for whom uh, t- telling the truth is is a is a battle uh, in my in my sin nature, that cuts right to the core because what many of us who, who lie and tell lie, or even those of you for whom it's not a major issue, but when you do lie, it will very often be to make yourself seem better than you are, to make yourself seem something that you're not. And in a way, Job says, yes, that's exactly what lying does. You, uh, you seem sincere, but you're insincere. You seem trustworthy, but you're untrustworthy, which you prove by your lying. And it's, it's the reverse of what we're trying to do. We're trying to make ourselves better in the eyes of others, but by the very fact that lying is the means by which we're doing it, we reveal that we are insincere and untrustworthy. Lies are one of the rare characteristics in the Bible. You know how the Bible talks about us being made in God's image, and then it gives us some sense and some examples of ways that we bear the image of God. Well, lies are one of Scripture's examples of people who are image-bearers of Satan. Lying is so intrinsic to Satan's nature that those who bear his nature are liars. Um, That's intense, isn't it? it? It is significant evidence of our commitment, of who's in charge of us, of who really is our authority. If God is our authority, then we bear the image of truth, even when it's hard or inconvenient. When Satan is our authority, we bear the image of falsehood when it's for personal and selfish gain in particular. And so he, uh, Derek Thomas says, there is no godliness without truthfulness. That lie that we're trying to tell to bring about a, a better end for ourselves that's dangerous territory now lying to those who are going to use the truth for evil is something the bible gives us a category for misleading the spies who are going to slaughter god's people the example we always jump to in more modern times is whether or not you're hiding jews in your basement do you have to tell the nazis the jews are here so they come kill them no the bible actually gives us that category for lies that are told, and this is why I do think it's important that the Ten Commandments do not have a categorical moral law against all lies. I, I, I think that is not insignificant. Because the Bible has these examples of lies in the service of God. And so that's a very real, real thing. But I will tell you, the number of times in your life that you have to invoke lies in the genuine service of God compared to the number of times that you pretend you're telling this lie for a greater good outside of yourself is pretty big gulf, pre- pretty big gap. And, and for those of us for whom this is difficult, we love to argue on that front of the battle. It's like in the, in the abortion debate, right, when people want to talk about rape, incest, and the life of the mother. And, of course, rape should not be okay. In, I'm sorry, rape's never okay. Abortion should not be okay in any of those contexts either. Adding an evil to an evil doesn't, doesn't make it better. But that's the ground where people want to argue about abortion in this country. And if we just set that aside for a moment and say, well, what about the other 99.28% of abortions that take place? Could we just talk about those and come up with some rules for those? Well, they don't want the argument to be there because that would get to meddling in their lives and what they want to do. And so it is, when we are committed to lying, especially Christians, people in the church who really struggle with lying, we want the argument to be around the nuances of the Bible's position on truth and lie. And it is a nuanced position, not so much in the life of a liar. It's not. It's just lies. It's just, it's just lies. And so we've got to recognize That without truthfulness, there is no godliness. The curse, we talked about how Job, throughout this section, is going to take these self-maledictory oaths. If what I'm saying is not true, let something bad happen to me. You're working on uh, French, and in all the languages, you put the little piece, self, mal, Mal is bad in just about every language that exists. Self is me. Bad on me. If I don't do the thing I said, may bad come to me. And the specific example he gives in verse 8, crop failure, I think suggests, and uh, of the commentaries I have, Derek Thomas agrees. Another one thinks differently, so this is just Suggestion. He's responding to Eliphaz's charge. Remember, Eliphaz accused him of shady business practices and of his life being filled up with ill-gotten gain. And so Job is saying, if it's really ill-gotten, God, burn it up. Take it away. Let my crops fail. Let me be left with nothing. Now, obviously, this is, this is a, a theoretical argument at this point because Job don't have no more crops. <laughs> but that's the point of the argument is Job would believe he has no right to such things were he to act unrighteously. And the reason why he's confident that this is undeserved in his life is because he's innocent of all of these charges, and that's the case that he's making. Thoughts, questions about dishonesty? How do we
2: deal with the, um, the lying prophet that God... God's, all right, so I will send a lying prophet and put it in your mouth.
0: Yeah. What do you mean deal with? I mean,
2: is that, <laughs> does that causes any kind of problem that God is, it, it, it seems like sanctioning dishonesty.
0: I don't think it's categorically any differently from God telling Satan he can do whatever he wants to Job or God telling the Amalekites to come and slaughter uh quote-unquote, innocent women and children and another. Uh, God is uh, absolutely engaged in everything that comes to pass in his universe for his good purposes. He is able to use wickedness and sinfulness and wrongness of other people from which he has no moral connection. But I I would put that in the same bucket.
2: What
1: about lying by omitance
0: Yeah, it's a great question. It's not different don't share. at all.
1: Everything with everybody.
0: No, but that's not lying. Lying is it's a, it's a great point. One of the critical questions in thinking through the nuanced biblical view on is, does a person have a right or a reason to know something? And uh, what will they do with it? And we use the second one to justify a lot of things. Well, what they'll do with it is they'll get mad. and they, Well, that's not a good enough reason to lie to somebody, that they won't like the truth. That's that's not a good place to be. Right, or we, you know, we, we confess our sins. We should be open to admit that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We should be willing to talk about specific sins in our lives. That doesn't mean we talk about them in every context. And... It's a real problem today how many, especially pastors, are, are teaching people that this, I'm a mess, look at what a mess I am. Aren't you glad your pastor's a mess because we're all just messes? And we're the, like That is a far cry from Paul's imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'll tell you I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, but, and, and we're all friends, and you know I'm a deeply flawed human being. But there are plenty of ways I will tell you you need to make your life and thinking look like mine in ways that my life looks like Christ's and that of your elders and as well. That, that, and, and so they cloud that in language of truth. Oh, I'm just being honest with people. Well, and to your point, Pam, no. Not everything that is true needs... What, what reason or right do they have to know that information? Now, I will add a subcategory of thinking through that is correcting someone's false belief. Sometimes somebody thinks something good about us that's not true. And the reason that they have to know the truth is that the thing they believe is currently not true. Oh, it's not hurting anybody. It's, it's an offense to the truth. Uh, and so correcting falsehood, even unintentional, is a reason to tell people the truth. People make decisions based on the information that they have, (laughs) and and we're not helping them if we allow them to have false information. And then what they'll do with it is, well, what are they going to do with this information? Well, they're going to kill Jews. Okay, well, no, then they have no right to that information. All they intend for it is evil. I'm I'm allowed to that. But it's going to make them mad. It's going to cause disruption in my day. It's going to upset so-and-so. Not a valid reason. If they otherwise have a right or a reason to that truth, then what your energy is supposed to be focused on is how are you going to tell them? What is the best way? What is the least disruptive way? What is the way that gives them the most opportunity to respond well? But the decision of whether or not they know is no longer up to you if they have a right or reason. I'm sorry, I thought you... Oh, that's loud.
2: Oh, you. Does that apply to the... Um, the what will they do with it is going to be hurt? Right, like, the, does these pants make me look fat? That, those types of questions. <laughs> that's <what it> is. <laughs> <laughs> when in fact they do, are you an obligated to say?
1: Well, that's a whole uh-huh. thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's yeah. yeah, I know. Like that's what the burden that. on
2: them. But me, I'm thinking more like my ch- a child. Yeah. Uh, 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 is there something wrong with me, or like people? Not like me for read like when they ask you questions,
0: it like required more unpacking and like I think I think in our close relationships, and again, this is why let me just emphasize here: every time you approach an issue with godly nuance, sinners will be able to take advantage of it. The idea of uh, male headship in the house, husbands. What's so scary about that is that sinners can take advantage of it and make it really miserable. What's scary about God's infinite forgiveness is that sinners can say, well, let's sin some more so that grace may abound. Every single thing that the Bible takes a nuanced position, what bothers Christians is that sinners will take advantage of it. So this... Nuanced version of truth we're talking about absolutely can be taken advantage of by sinners. That doesn't mean it's not true. And so then you have to engage with questions like Jake of, okay, how do you try to be godly in that situation? And with the people that we're closest to, I don't think it's a cop-out at all to keep in mind. Topics are going to come up again and again and again, and you're going to be able to approach them from multiple angles, in multiple contexts, in, in different moments when people are feeling receptive in different ways. And I, if you know, I'm going to talk to this person about... This, this aspect of their personality, they've asked why people don't trust them. The reason why people don't trust them is that they're a liar. That's a very sensitive thing to them. So I'm going to think through over the course of how long I'm working with them on coming to see that that's what's harming their relationships. As long as you actually do that and you're not just constantly kicking the can down the curb making excuses why you're not doing it, that honors the Bible's view of how to handle truth and falsehood. And only we know, those close to us watching us will give us advice and input and opinions, but we're the only ones who know deep down, am I trying to do this with godliness and wisdom, or am I avoiding something I don't want to do? Because very, or the other side of that coin, which is the way you phrase a question, sometimes we just don't want to deal with it the hard way, and so we just blow people up. We don't usually do that with the people who are closest to us. We do it with people who are one layer removed. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of patience and a lot of prayer and diligence to help people see something that they don't see. And it's so much easier to just blow them up with it. And if the thing we're saying is true, they are a liar. We feel totally justified in it. But that's not this view of truth either. Um,
1: Yeah, it's tough. Other questions? I think this is just about the right slash reason, but um, if you're keeping confidence with someone, so if someone confides in you, right, and then a third person asks you, what does this person think about that?
0: You, you know? should ask them about that. A phrase that everybody needs to get in their library, repeated a thousand times until you remember it, is you should ask them about that. Oh, I, I, I don't want to bother them. Well, then you won't know. <laughs> yeah. Then that kind of gets into But if you want to know that thing about them, ask them.
1: Yeah,
0: Yeah. Almost no matter what the thing is. There should be an implied confidentiality in our relationships for things that matter. You should not have to get somebody to sign a waiver or put at the bottom of your email. (laughs) Please do not repeat this outside. There should be an implied confidentiality for things that matter. Silly stories, you know, that's fine. But for things that matter, and we know them, you know when we really know them is when we repeat them. Because if it didn't matter, we wouldn't be repeating it. We wouldn't get that surge of adrenaline for sharing the thing that we know, that nobody else knew. That's how you can know. And I hate that it happens after the fact. I hope we'll recognize it before the fact. Uh, And at that moment, all we can do is repent. Say, you know what? I should not have said that to you. That is not my place. I hope you will forgive me. Because remember, what you're creating now is, I mean, what does Andrew care that I narked on Jake, right? Except that can Andrew trust me with anything? <clears throat> he has to know I'm doing the same thing, narking on him. Yeah. And and that's that's why your relationships get blown up, is people realize, boy, you you are not a safe person.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, that's safety. And if you want I mean, we live in an age where everybody claims what they want are authentic relationships and more transparency and the who in the world is dumb enough to be transparent with a blabbermouth?
2: Mm. Hmm. I don't know if social media seems to be... That. It's, oh, it's no,
0: fake transparency. It's... it's <laughs> Stuff
1: that they just throw out. It's performative
0: art. It's mm-hmm. not life.
1: The difference in lying and deception, is there? There's
0: not. the The way we might tease out a difference, just for clarity, is... Lying is more directly, I am going to say things that are not true. And deception often involves what you don't say, innuendos, withholding things. That's not a technical distinction. That's just, again, sort of helping us tease out some differences. Allowing someone to believe something that isn't true is just as offensive to God as lying. Unless you've got a real bulletproof reason. Other thoughts?
1: It's just a thought. I feel like lying has been more recently we talked about. Where like I'm like, oh, I don't lie that much. And I think about my whole day with Luke. Is like, oh no, such and such already went to sleep, or there's no more crackers in the box. And it's like it's not building a good yeah. foundation for him. So we've had to be really intentional on. You can't just like flip a switch with the toddler and be like, oh yeah, we're not going to lie to them anymore. Like
0: I appreciate, yeah, and I appreciate you sharing that because I found it even in myself. I can't flip a switch from person to person. So when I start lying with my children because I don't want to deal with the lengthy conversation involved with telling them the truth, it's just as easy to lie with everybody else. Because the, the principle you're building in yourself is I'm allowed to lie to get what's easier. I don't mean any harm by it. I don't, you know, there's, the stakes are very low, but I'm getting what's easier for me. And those are the kind that really get me because I it's all about control for me. And so anything I can say that makes somebody else fall in line with my control, ideally, happily, is is okay, it's fair game. And then you come look at this like, nope, not at all. Not even a little bit. That's a good point
1: about I hadn't thought about that because I'm sure I'll do that with the grandchildren.
0: Yeah, yeah, you can we are we are teaching them. We are teaching our children. The truth doesn't matter if you need to get what you want. Well, I kind of came up
1: with that. Uh, yeah. Did you cook
2: it in your He's like, no. And we're like, well, you need to tell the truth. And then we're like,
0: why? Why does he need know, to tell the truth? Yeah. 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 So that's, that's a great life observation. No, I don't have any more of those. So I have to go through, you Because it's much harder to say, yes, oh, I have I one, but you can't have one.
2: That's exactly
0: it. Yeah. And we just take the easier way out. And again, that's what we're teaching our children. And it's the habit we're building in ourselves is... You can lie if it's the easier way out. Yeah. And that's a lot of times, that's what we're doing here. We're not making a real analysis that per- this person is actually going to use the truth for sin or to cause hurt to others. We're making the analysis of I don't want to deal with it. It's
1: true.
0: I don't want to deal with them having the truth.
2: Oh darn, I have to. Know. <laughs> I had to bring that up. <laughs> One of the harder ones is in life. I mean, not hard to know what's right and wrong. It's when somebody asks you to lie for them. Um, Yeah, because because then, when
0: you tell them no, when you tell someone you won't do it, no matter how gracious you are, you are judging them. You're judging them the way the Bible tells you to judge, incidentally. The Bible's not against all judging. You're doing exactly what the Bible tells you to do in this situation. But if you flip the script and you're the one receiving that kind of right judgment, that feels pretty terrible, and people react accordingly. And it's, it's very tough. It's the, We talk about this on the, the Lead with Character trips where Steve has the first boys lesson, which is what? Tell the, truth. Tell the truth. And he gives the example of, now this example doesn't make any sense anymore because we all have cell phones, but y'all remember when we had home phones? And the phone would ring and the child would answer it. Uh, Mrs. Jones? And then you'd look over and a parent's going, Ixney On the Jones A! <laughs> My parents aren't home, Mrs. Jones. <laughs> You're asking someone else to lie for you. You're, and it becomes so ingrained in us that we are allowed to say whatever we want if it makes life easier. And when you distill it to that principle, everybody's like, no, that's not what I'm doing. I'm trying not to hurt people's feelings. Why? Well, because I don't want to deal with the difficult conversation of having to say it the right gracious way uh-huh and that's different from making your life easier how and it's all that it's over and over and over again I don't want to act like a Christian in a difficult situation because it's hard that's what we're saying and I, and I say this as somebody this is I mean y'all this is top of the list for me it's hard and Job says yeah but there's no godliness there if you do it the other way there's no godliness so Job for his part says that he is blameless verse 6 he has clean hands verse 7 And that is how we ought to be. Three, uh, starting in verse 9. Karen, will you read 9 through 12? If my heart has been enticed toward a woman, and I have
2: lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as a badness and
1: that
0: would burn to the root all my increase. So Job already talked about lust in the first four verses, but now he comes back to sexual topics, and he talks about adultery and seduction. And these verses are filled with double entendre. <laughs> the the All the phrases in this section are sort of double-meaning kind of things. If I've lurked at my neighbor's door, may my wife... Da- uh, grind another man's grain. I mean that one you don't have to be too creative, right? That it's all of these are double entendres. And he's he's come back to this point, more specifically than just lust, is sex. Sex is for marriage and marriage only. And the line of thinking here is that marriage, a covenant, is based on trust and fidelity. And you cannot have a God-glorifying marriage covenant apart from trust and fidelity, faithfulness. And so casual sex outside of marriage or even before marriage, that attitude towards sex is an abuse of another person's dignity. It's an abuse of trust that perhaps hasn't even manifested yet. But you're going to have more work to do. As anybody knows who's married now and had sexual sin prior to marriage, it gives you more work to do to build the trust with your spouse because that was your perspective on sex at one point. And I I do wish, especially for our teenagers, I wish so much more of the world's teaching about sex was on the emotional, psychological, relational impact than just you're going to get a disease or you're going to get pregnant. Diseases in pregnancy are the least of your problems. Soul-wrenching heartbrokenness is worse. The inability to draw close to someone in a marriage because of previous sexual sin is worse. And nobody talks about that. I mean, the church talks about it. Well, really, no, it doesn't. Let me say that again. The church doesn't talk about it, to our shame. It's so much worse than the things the world wants you to be scared of. And scripture, it is so weird what has happened with sex, where it is either massively overemphasized, as if a human life cannot be happy and fulfilling without sex. I'm sorry, see Jesus. (laughs) It can be done. Paul, after his conversion it can be done or that sex is a problem and can't be discussed in polite company and can't and, and should be and is not an important part of a marriage covenant i'm sorry peter was married several of the apostles were married there's nowhere in the bible that suddenly jesus says to these disciples hey you got to cut out all that you know all that stuff it's just it doesn't happen in fact paul who's not married at this point now says just the opposite which is, no, that's an important part of your marriage covenant. You better We can't fall off either side of this horse. In a, in a culture that says it's the only thing that matters and it determines everything else, they're wrong. And in a church that says it's not important enough to be discussed regularly, they're wrong. And what we're getting here from Job is very careful attention to how to do it wrong, lust, adultery, fornication, and to why it matters. That it does matter. It's bound up in trust. It's bound up in fidelity and intimacy. The, I'm going to read from Derek Thomas for a minute. He says, the Bible is full of peaks and valleys of spiritual experience. But few valleys are deeper than the experience of David with Bathsheba. One of the things that emerges from the story is that sin is never simple. Adultery was only part of the shame that came upon David. He knew who Bathsheba was, that she was married to another, and David's adultery involved both covetousness and theft. And when Bathsheba's pregnancy was discovered, David became embroiled in lies and deceitfulness, trying to make people think the baby was Uriah's. Ultimately, it led to murder see how it started with one area of sin and it cannot stop there sin is never content ruining one area of your life it wants to corrupt the whole person it's not satisfied just to allow you to dabble in one sin that's that's the whole point of the harlot's cup in revelation is you think you're just going to take a couple sips And you take a couple sips, and they're great. And you take a few more, and after a while, it doesn't even feel great anymore. You're not even enjoying what you're drinking anymore, which is true of all of our sins. That's why they escalate out of control. It takes more and more and more to get high, whatever the stimulant is. And the harlot's cup is that until you are drinking the dregs of death in the bottom of it. Nobody's making you drink it. You are choosing to poison yourself with sin. That's what sin does. And that's what happened to David. Now, but God's grace, he shows David and uh, gives David repentance. <laughs> Through what? Preaching of the prophet. <laughs> gives him repentance and clarity about his sin. And redeems him. Because that's what God does. The point is not... Wow, David did this really, really, really wicked stuff that we never do anything like. And look, God was like, no, it's, hey, that thing that you are very convinced somewhere in the back of your mind that if you cross this line, God will never forgive, he forgave that. There's grace for that. But can't sinners take advantage of that and just do it anyway? Yes. So don't be a sinner. <laughs>
1: hmm.
2: oh, don't do it.
1: Questions about Adultery to comment, connecting this one to the previous one about lies and deception, and you alluded to this when you were talking about the modern kind of attitudes towards sex. Yeah. Um, like, in, in, in fewer areas than I could think of is like the perniciousness of lying and dishonesty more on display than when talking about adultery or sexual relations. The word is sex positive if you go to college, and it's like... <laughs> All I'm saying is just, like, for for me, who doesn't struggle with lies in perhaps the same way other people do, right. I can appreciate how bad lying is in that context.
0: Whatever the one area of sin that is the harder struggle for you, lying will become a part of that, to cover up that sin, to justify the sin, to rationalize it. For some of us, lying is its own category. It, it, it is the thing. And then you're lying to cover up the lies. which is you know, the, the, the nursery rhyme my parents drilled into my head was what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. And that idea that it's never one lie, it's a spider web of lies, and you're making more and more. Well, whatever that first line is, if it's in the sexual realm, if it's uh, greed, theft, stealing, that sort of thing... The lies will build the web around it. And then you're right. uh, One of the things that seems more recent or feels more recent to us, it's probably not, is this redefining language and making people who want to hold to what is right feel as though they're wrong. They're the weirdos. They're, I mean, this is how so many kids who go to college get persuaded to walk away from the faith. Your faith was oppressive. They just wanted to control you. Real freedom is through, insert whatever category of sin.
1: And the language is so, you know, just challenge what you've been taught. You know, just, just be, you know.
0: And parents, parents who say, I'm not going to send my kid. This is going to be controversial. I'm speaking an example, not a law. From my perspective, a parent, we do all that we can to raise our children in the truth. And then, if we're careless about what college we send them off to, we're paying money for someone to do that to the child that for 18 years we were trying to be so careful to instill this worldview. And then we're just releasing them to the wolves. And then, the moment you say what I just said, because I've said it on bus trips, and I have dads who send their kids to state schools, look at me and say, Well, you just want to shelter your child forever. I think, Well, that's an interesting sort of extreme, to go to. I do want my child to be challenged. I want them to own their own faith. I want them to have to engage with the world as it is. But an 18-year-old child, who is still a child, I want to do that from the context of someone who knows how to engage in that from a biblical perspective. Somebody who can continue the work that Daphne and I and all of you were doing with the Molnar children which is the, here's how you view the hard things of life through the biblical worldview. Not somebody who says that biblical worldview was the problem. <clears throat> Let me show you another way to look at life. Well, that other way to look at life is pretty appealing. Just take a sip of it. And another sip. And it matters a lot. I
1: watched yeah. that over and over again
0: in college. I mean, it, yeah. your, your school was no different. from Yeah. yeah. There are professors at many universities, including Christian colleges, whose delight is to deconstruct the worldview of the Christian children that they're sent. Yes, for sure. It is a sport for them. I mean, some
1: of that plays into the major, though. Like, I never took a single class that discussed any sort of... I think
0: it's more significant at liberal arts colleges, and I think at non-liberal arts colleges, it would be very major-specific. And, and to that point, I would just say, think about what... the. Yeah, no, no. But think about what the child is missing out on. How much greater a perspective on botany or engineering or computer programming, how much more joy can you get out of any of those fields if you connect it back to the god of order who made these things to be you're right it's not as violent an assault it's also why i was thinking through your recent trip to germany and how fun it is in europe in general to talk to people about christianity this is the reason why when i was looking at at academic programs over there i wasn't looking at academic programs over here and it's because they're so post-Christianity in Europe, they're not insecure about it. They feel perfectly fine that they've abandoned the gospel. They can treat it as a worldview like any other, and they're curious about it. Why would you believe that? It's a, it's a quaint thing. for the, It's like, oh, I, I met a Buddhist. That's how they feel about you. America isn't there yet. We're too close to the Second Great Awakening. People still remember... The church attendance of their parents and grandparents, they still have to go to weddings in a church. They still have to go to their friends' kids' baptisms. They still feel pressure to go with mom or grandmom on Christmas and Easter. And because of all of that, they are incredibly insecure about their rejection of Christianity. And so they're not curious at all. They're angry. They're combative. They're mean-spirited about it. And it's much more fun to talk about your faith in Europe than here. Because they're not upset about it anymore. They don't have a chip on their shoulder. They just walked away. What? One of the oh, sorry on.
1: Go
2: ahead. I was one of the insidious lies that are behind <clears throat> this, I have found, is that you can't understand a sin unless you have experienced slash, like, come face to face with it. And the best I've heard on this was a Roman Catholic who was like, "I think I," haven't, who's never had sex, or right? a Roman Catholic priest who said, "I think I have a very clear understanding of sex, having never been." Like, it kind of goes to George Costando's like when he. Yeah. Stop like a, your mind's unclouded by these things. Yeah. Um, you, you can teach your kids about them and the seriousness about them without throwing them to the wolves. That's right. And that's, that's the lie that they make. Is that, oh, they're going to be complete babes in the woods
0: and have no ability to... I remember I said a few weeks ago about the idea, of like, say you get a young pastor who doesn't have children. And somebody would say, well, what advice does he have to give about parenting? And my first reaction is, he probably has brilliant advice, because he's probably not dealing with guilt, regret, or defensiveness about the way he's raised his children. <laughs> my advice is always clouded by, I know what I really should tell you to do, but I didn't do it last week, so I'm going to hold that back. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: He doesn't have that. Lauren? What, so what do you think is the worst state of, of young people?
2: <coughs> um, the European state or the American state?
0: I think a harder context for gospel ministry is America. The, the sort of burned over districts where a form of godliness that denied its power was present for so long. It is harder, humanly speaking, nobody wins anybody unless the spirit is moving. Humanly speaking, it is harder to win people to the gospel when they think they know what Christianity is because they've been surrounded by those words their whole life than people who are genuinely hearing for the first time Jesus wasn't just a good moral teacher. It was actually a lot more important than that. So, you know, worse, they're all going to hell. (laughs) But in terms of where is revival more common in history is situations like Europe than situations like here. That is very sad. All right. Oppression. Daphne, will you read 13 through 15?
2: If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb?
0: Oh, boy, that cuts you to the quick, doesn't it? As quickly as we are to look at other people and write them off. We know better. We deserve better. We. I was listening to the, I told you guys, I was listening to the lectures from the GROW conference. And in one of the, it was the fireside chat that Neil was doing with Jeff and Diane. And he was talking about a common thread in marriage counseling. And the example he was giving the wife is to blame, but he, he was making the point that we all do this. But it was, you know, when your husband, when a husband is caught in a grievous sin, it was the example he used was pornography, and they'll be in counseling, and a lot of times you, you can talk to the wife and spend some time with the wife, and yet there's, there's brokenness and real grief and hurt because real offense and sin happened. And you can talk to the wife, and you can realize she thinks her husband needs God's grace far more than she does. And I think about how often we look at other people in life that way, that we need a little bit of God's grace. (laughs) This guy. (laughs) We deserve what we have, and they don't. And, And the result of that is this... Lack of respect for others. This, this, is the. I don't. I mean, you know, some of us on our session really struggle with the word empathy. But even that, notwithstanding, I don't think our culture's problem is a is a is most a lack of sympathy. I think our culture's problem is a lack of respect for human dignity. You just see it come out in so many issues. The, the, the dignity of what it means to be a person, to be a human made in God's image, and what that dignity therefore demands from other people. And we look at especially one side of the political divide in this country that, that wants to make everything a human right, you are entitled to a half-acre tract of land with a two-story, 3,000-square-foot house on it as your God-given right. Okay, that's, yes, that is nonsense and problematic. But we need to be careful lest we swing the pendulum so far the other way that we forget that these are people made in the image of God. How many words of the Bible God spends commanding his people with regards to the alien, to the foreigner, to the sojourner in your gates, to the less than in every human category. If God wants us to be as indifferent about those people as most Christians are, he wasted a lot of words. Why did he talk about it so much? And that... that de facto default oppression where we think as long as we're not the ones putting our feet on somebody's neck, we're okay. And yet there are so many ways where we can be silent when we should speak up. And I I recognize fully, we are in a time where sinners are taking advantage of the nuanced doctrine I just presented. (laughs) I get it. Silence is not always violence. <laughs> and it should never be a slogan. That should not be a thing. But are there times when we should speak up for justice when we don't? Yes. And is that wrong? Is that the sin of oppression? Yes. We are all made in God's Verse 15. Did not he who made me make them? Well, yeah, but he made me better. You see how you feel if you say that out loud? That's why I think it's good for us to have to say that out loud every now and then. You feel really bad when you say that out loud, and you should. (laughs) But we're letting out what's in our hearts sometimes. He made me better. Just that little sense of I have what I have because I deserve it. This is a tough one, too, with family members. I think several of us are in positions where among our siblings or family... Our lives are the most put together. They, Our lives show some form of human order and success. And a lot of times other family members will look at that and will speak to it and give all the glory to us. Well, you made wise decisions. You And... I don't agree with people who go the other direction either and say that our actions have nothing to do with it whatsoever, but it's our actions by God's grace. It's our actions in obedience to the way that God laid out. You know why this worked out for me? I did the things God told me to do, and he was gracious to bless them. That's why things end up better. And in Job's case, sometimes it don't. And he can still say, I did the thing that God told me to do. That's what this whole argument is, is, on the whole, you should expect better to come out of a life where this is the practice. Three things, Derek Thomas says, emerge from the fact of man's creation by God. The first is dignity. That's Genesis one twenty six. this idea that every human being bears, to some degree, the image of God. And then equality, in that God shows no partiality in his treatment of those whom he's made, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Why? God. Because God. Well, no, no. Sure, no. he looked into the future and saw. That. Nope. First of all, God doesn't need to look anywhere for knowledge of the future. No. Because Jacob I've loved and because Esau I've hated. And then responsibility. And that it is our responsibility to be prepared to forego our rights. For the sake of others. This is one of the ultimate. And. It's tough for us. But true. Jesus Jukes of the Bible. Is when we are so unwilling. To lay down our rights. For someone else. How in the world can we claim. To be looking at Christ. How in the world can we claim. To be walking along with Christ. And following after the image of Christ. And then look at someone and say. I don't have to do that. Oh, they, they need to get their stuff together. Pam?
2: An example of
0: that. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Any time that putting ourselves in a position where someone could take advantage of us, not even the being taken advantage of, which is the next step, but even putting ourselves in the position where it would be possible for someone to take advantage of us, there are entire realms of Christian who go through life never doing that. They're always guarding their lives against being taken advantage of.
2: Mm. I could see that in, I actually was traveling with a night band I was a believer this one time and we were um, walking someplace and someone came up and asked for, you know, money that, um, this is in Toronto, so cold, right? A place to stay and stuff. And I remember my mind immediately went, oh, they're going to go out and just buy something to drink. And
0: he immediately, didn't think twice, gave them money. And he says, I'd rather be wrong. You know, yeah. And again, this is such happy. a great example, because they're coming up today, of nuanced positions that, it's am I saying that you have to give to every single person? and every, No, I'm not. But that feeling that you're talking about, that's that's good. It's good that we would have to examine ourselves and say, "Why is my first reaction no?" Yeah, yeah.
2: it really it struck. It literally, that moment I've never forgot.
0: With my own children, when they want to do something, and that something is going to create a hassle for me, or an inconvenience for me, or extra work for me, or it, and my first answer is no, because I think about me. This is my free time. This is my. I'm not willing to lay that down for them. I mean it's so trivial when you give that sort of example, and yet aren't those the examples that we have fifteen times a week? Somebody needs help and they need my time. I love to throw money at problems, but when somebody needs my time, oh I guard my time so carefully. Well, is my time an idol? What what am I doing? I think there are lots of examples like that where we refuse to lay down our rights. And and by the very nature of that statement, we're admitting, is this something you have to do? No, it's not. If it was something you had to do, it's simply a sin not to do it. What we're talking about is the ones that you don't have to do, the ones where you would have a right and you could point to a Bible verse that says, I don't have to do that. And then the question is, but do you never do those? the ones that you don't have to do, is the answer always, no. If so, I'm not sure that we're taking the responsibility of laying down our rights for others seriously. And sometimes, this is one of the ways where I think about, uh, sorry to, but your life with Woods being such a great example for the rest of us. uh, You don't have the choice to say no, don't want to. This is going to be hard today. This is going to take from me. This is going to exhaust me. Like, in that situation, you don't have the choice. And, and those situations in, in our lives, we need to be able to look at and say, I need to be more like that. I need to look at other people in such a way that my first instinct is, why wouldn't I do this? It would take a reason, a real reason not to lay down my want, my right for this other person, because that's what love is and a parent and a child, it's not easy, but it comes naturally because you love your child. For all these, you other suckers, my neighbors, but God called me to love my neighbor. All the words he could have used, he used neighbor. It drives me nuts. I know. It drives me nuts.
2: So, I mean we've just swung on both sides of this pendulum of you need to learn how to say
0: no. And you need and to you learn how to say yes. Yeah. You need
2: to be careful judging other people about when they say
0: know. yes or no. Yeah. I mean, this is why, and we'll close here because we're over time. But this is why I say it's hard work to be a Christian. And what the biblical, what the Bible calls us to do in all of these circumstances goes through such a nuanced filter. That's right judgment. The Bible is not life's little instruction manual. It's not. It's harder than that. The Bible is filled with principles and examples of principles and commands to be committed to principles so that then you have to look at an individual situation and say, what from Scripture comes to bear on this? And the answer is always a lot of it. And it's hard and it's wrestling and it's nuanced. And... Sinners can take advantage of it. So what? Don't be a sinner. (laughs) Use it for wisdom.